A good Monday morning to you. Just about 9.07. In just a second, we're going to introduce you to the captain of the University of Alberta Golden Bears soccer team, Tim Hickson, is going to join us here in studio. Tim is one of the organizers, kind of the driving force behind a bike-a-thon that went down at the Savile Sports Centre uh, Friday and Saturday. Sure, they were trying to raise some funds, but more importantly, I think, trying to raise awareness on some mental health issues, and Tim comes at this from a very personal place. We'll get his story on mental health and athletics and how oftentimes athletes' identities are tied to what they do as opposed to necessarily who they are in a more collective sense. You know what I mean? It's not just athletes like this either. How many of you, I mean, geez, we talk about it on the air all the time right now. How many of you have your identities tied into what you do in a time like an economic downturn in in Alberta? I mean, if your identity is tied to what you do for work or the company you've built from the ground up and that collapses or your work opportunities evaporate, if you're an athlete and your career comes to an end before you're ready or maybe even when you thought you were ready, but you realized you weren't. Where do you go from there? Some insight from the now 23-year-old captain of the U of A Bears coming up in just a moment. Of course, former Premier, former Edmonton Eskimo, Don Getty's state funeral on Saturday. We're going to bring you some of the more memorable moments, some of the messages that especially resonated with Albertans in attendance there before the top of the clock. In the 10 o'clock hour, we'll talk some politics. We'll get into the mailbag. Somebody else is going to qualify to go to Vegas to see Guns N' Roses at 10.20. And then in the 11 o'clock hour, Son of France is the new novel. Edmonton author Todd Babiak set to release it this Wednesday. He published an editorial in the Globe and Mail over the weekend And to call it powerful would uh, be an understatement. The headline reads, How a Murder Changed the Way Novelist Todd Babiak Writes About Violence. The Babiak family was devastated just this past year. And Todd's going to come talk about that and how it's impacted his writing process. Very much looking forward to hearing about that. So... As I may not need to say, we're looking at a powerful show on this Monday morning. We're happy to have you here. To help us welcome Tim Hickson to the program, let's take a listen to a video that was posted on YouTube just a few days ago. Who am I? Four years ago, my life changed and it went dark. I took off the jersey and everything started to shift. For as long as I could remember, the game was what defined me. Without that... Who am I? My depression got worse, and I lost who I was. Depression led to my substance abuse addiction, and as that grew, my addiction led to self-harm. When you do something and commit yourself so wholly to a craft in your life, your mind and your thinking changes. Eventually, nothing else matters, not even your life. One in five Canadians will experience some sort of mental illness in their lives, and two out of the three will suffer in silence like I did. Who am I is the hardest and most frequently asked question that I ask myself. Am I the soccer player, the pro, the student athlete, the brother, the son, or friend? Who am I? I am Tim Hickson, and I am fighting. I'm fighting and speaking out to end my silence and to end the stigma around mental health. 
joined the Golden Bears soccer team. Tim Hickson is the captain of the University of Alberta Golden Bears soccer team, joining us in studio this morning. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. That was your voice there on that video, and it's a, a powerful message. It might be weird to welcome you to the program in such a way, but let me say that someone that would take a look at you on first glance would see an elite athlete, good-looking guy, for all intents and purposes, you look like a, a picture of success early in life. But here you are, it seems, already on the other side of a pretty arduous personal journey, looking back in retrospect. Where did this story all begin? Well, just like you said, I think the facade is the biggest part of it. The people who you might not expect to be this way or to have these kind of issues sometimes are the ones that have it the worst. Um, I don't want to go out there and say I've got it the worst because I know there's plenty of people out there, but uh, a long time ago, soccer um, has been my game and it's been my life ever since I was young. My dad, he's from England, so it's been, it's been in our blood to say the least. Uh, I can't remember playing any other sport when I was a kid and then growing up uh, you just kind of you move through the ranks and you start to go with team after team uh, getting seen by provincial provincial coaches national coaches national training centers to eventually doing uh, international competition to then getting picked up like uh, by the Vancouver Whitecaps like I did um, and that eventually you just kind of snowballs and something that you enjoy playing because you're good at it turns into a career and when you're so close to that doorstep and you're playing with a professional team, you're with their youth system, uh, their residency reserve squad, things like that, and then you get that one fateful day where they tell you, no, uh, we're not going to re-sign you, everything just kind of implodes. And that entire wall that you've been building ever since you were however old or however young you were when you first started just absolutely topples down. Because that's not how it's supposed to go, right? I mean, you're supposed to follow the model of like an Owen Hargraves who grew up in, in Western Canada, didn't stop him from moving over to star in Europe, right? How old were you when you first signed with the Whitecaps? I was 17. 17. So where was your head at when you were 17? What, what did the big dream look like? Big dream was just to play pro. Um, I finally had a team come and, come and approach me, and I guess you can say like it's, it's cliche, but you never look back and anything else, school, job, other things, you just don't even think about. You just have one thing on your mind. Did you, uh, did you notice that when, when your friends would introduce you to other people or when family members would introduce you to new friends that, that the context in which you were introduced was always Tim plays soccer, Tim's signed with the Whitecaps, Tim's a budding soccer star? Yeah, it was always basically the exact same sentence and it was a run-on one. It was just like, this is Tim, he plays in Vancouver. Or, this is Tim, he plays for the Whitecaps. This is Tim, the soccer player. And you really start to believe your own hype in a sense. And that just kind of furthers your identity. And even when you introduce yourself, I mean, for me, coming home, um, I'd always come back to Edmonton for a visit, whether in Christmas or in summer and things like that. And it was, people would ask me, oh, what are you up to? How are things going? The first thing you say is, oh, I'm in Vancouver. I'm playing here. I'm doing this. Or I, was, I just came back from Spain playing with the team or doing a tour in Mexico, things like that. And it, like, it, it's surprising. It, it snowballs on itself so much more than what you think. Now, isn't, in a way all of that necessary? I mean, if you want to succeed as an elite athlete, don't you kind of have to live, breathe, and sleep your sport? Yeah, I mean, a lot of coaches will tell you that to be a player, you've got to have that swagger to you. You've got to have that kind of conceited nature, I guess you can say. And a lot of times people say, like, oh, he's cocky, or oh, he's got this kind of uh, this kind of nature to him. But you, you do have to believe in yourself, and you've got to 
you have to promote your name a bit more than what you normally would so that people believe that you believe that what you're doing is what you want to do. I asked this question so we can better understand your journey right around the time when you were 17 and you first signed with Vancouver and then let's say when you were 18, those early years of your experience in their developmental system, how would you characterize your mental health at that point? Definitely in the beginning, it was surreal. I uh, couldn't believe it and I was ecstatic and happy and I would never even peg myself as somebody that would be uh, depressed or anything like that. Um, but. I guess towards the end of the three and a half years I was there, you get you get the, like these feelings that you know maybe the first team doesn't want me or maybe they're not going to resign my contract. Because uh, you were trying to play your way onto the main roster, right? Yeah. And all of this, if my timing's correct, correct me correct me if I'm wrong, was was right around the time that Vancouver was was moving into the MLS. Yeah. So, which would have been obviously the highest level of professional soccer in North America. Yeah, absolutely. When I first went out there, Vancouver was part of the NASL. Um, so we were training with them, playing exhibition games, things like that. And then in my second year, Vancouver had moved into the MLS. That was their inaugural season. And then the last year I was there was uh, their second year, and that's when I was released. So you're you're just that close. Yeah. You just, could taste it, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, the, the big thing we said in a couple of uh, interviews with some people is that you get your foot in the door. Um, and you think that because you have your foot in your door that that you're there but that door can close at any time and the mat was basically pulled out from right under my feet and I just went right back you were what 20 21 I was about 20 yeah and how did the meeting go you know I, I don't think I even said a word in it I think going into it you kind of have like these what ifs what if that um, what am I gonna do you know I've got this idea maybe maybe they're gonna resign me maybe they want maybe they want to give me another year um, but I remember sitting down actually my parents were visiting in Vancouver at the time so I think it made it a little bit harder because I didn't want to. I didn't want to cry or look sad in front of them. And I think when I was sitting down in that meeting and I had two of the coaches tell me, you know, Tim, we're not going to resign you. We're not going to extend your contract. We want to wish you all the best, but we want to make your last couple months here great. Um, but after those two months, you're going to have to go. I kind of just sat there for a second in disbelief and just didn't know what to say. And I could feel my parents' eyes on me, like, well, what's Tim going to say? What's he going to do? Is he going to get angry? Is he going to get sad? And I remember just like kind of shaking my head because I, I didn't even want them to say anything. And kind of a cruel nature to your scenario as well because you had signed so early in life, you had lost eligibility to play elsewhere. Yeah, for a long time, the Whitecaps actually did a great thing. They, they, they challenged the NCAA to try and fight for a lot of the guys' rights to get the chance for the guys to go and play at school. And it was, it was a massive battle for a while. And eventually the NCAA had caved a bit and said, well, fine, but however many years the guys have been out of school we'll just take those years away. It doesn't matter about the contract. But since I had been out of school for about two years, plus the, the contract years, I would only have about a year, at, a year of eligibility maybe at NCAA. And not many schools are going to take someone for a year when it takes a year for a rookie to get into the roster. On the so you're 11. 20 years old and you find yourself at a crossroads. Uh, it feels like, I, I would imagine, several doors are slamming in your face right around the time that, that a lot of kids, and you know, I mean, 20 feels like a kid, doesn't it? Yeah. A lot of kids are just getting started. I mean, starting to write exams. They're upgrading classes to try to get into post-secondary. They're starting to think about what they might want to do, and everything that you always wanted to do is now over. 
Yeah, a lot of my friends were at school at the time, and they had just finished their first year courses or first year school, and they were telling me, "Oh, I really enjoy this. So I'm going to go into this program. Or, you know, I'm, I'm fantastic in kinesiology, so I'm going to be doing kines next year. I want to change into athletic therapy." And even my sister, she was she was doing so well in athletic therapy, and that's the route that she wanted to go. And it was so nice to see her find her niche. And but it was so hard at the same time to see all these people that I loved around me finding their niche and finding out what they want to go through with and do, and everything for me was just kind of crashing down. So the next thing you know, there's dependence on painkillers, there's self-harm, you're at your lowest low. What led to that, and how'd you find your way out? That's what we'll ask Tim Hickson when we return. Tim Hickson, our guest captain of the University of Alberta Golden Bears men's soccer team, founder and organizer of this past weekend's Golden Bears soccer 24-hour bike-a-thon. Before we headed to break, we were talking about the, your pro soccer career, your dream of, of starring on the pitch coming to an end at 20 years of age. And, and that's for you, I guess, when everything started to go sideways. What contributed to this slide for you? Just the overall nature of being told no, um, that fear of rejection and finally hearing it was the hardest thing. And especially when you're part of a pro program like that, from such a young age, you get so used to people telling you what your life is going to be like and what you're going to be doing on a daily basis. They basically give you a schedule from when you wake up to when you go to bed at night. This is what you're doing. This is who you're meeting. We're going to have this then, trainings at this time, weights is at this time. And I remember coming home after um, after I left Vancouver, and I had about two weeks there where I just didn't know what I was going to do. Like, what, what time do I wake up at? Am I going to go do this today? Like, people would ask me, hey, do you want to hang out today? And I said, oh, I, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm doing today. Like, trying to make your own schedule again was just daunting because I hadn't done it for about three and a half years. So you develop an addiction to pres- prescription painkillers. Did that sort of come out of the blue for you? Was that was that something, was that a, a vice that you were always fighting against in your playing career, or was that new for you? You know, it's, it's funny because painkillers like that, it's so, they're so easily accessible in the sport world because of injury, uh, things like that, guys who need surgery and end up getting stronger drugs. And... A lot of the time, guys can just simply ask for it or go and get it or things like that. And I mean, towards the end, when I was in Vancouver, I used to get really bad migraine or migraines. So I had gone to the doctor and I was on nortriptyline and things like that. And it was supposed to kind of take the weight off my shoulders and kind of numb me up a little bit. And it got to the point where I started to really like that. And working off of that, I'd start to take more than what I was supposed to. And I kind of started to like that again and get into that. And I thought, well, okay, what if I take something harder? What if I take something that's a bit stronger than that? And it just kind of carried on from there. And then we would start to mix it with alcohol. And when I came home from Vancouver after being released, that's when I started to mix it with alcohol as more of like a dependency and take it when I was going out with friends and probably going out with people more than I should. It was like three or four times a week. And you just eventually get hooked with it. But to the point where you're taking it when you wake up in the morning and you carry it with you all throughout the day. And then you started hurting yourself. Yeah, I wanted to try and wean off the pills a little bit, um, knowing that I should, but I didn't know how I could control it. And all these little ticks that I had trying to control it just made me so agitated and angry. And at the time, I remember thinking, like, well, I need to do something that makes me feel less pain, but try to take away the pain that I was doing. And I ended up grabbing a couple razor blades and just started cutting myself. And it just. I went through these little blurts where I would either cut myself or I'd be on pills or I'd do both at the same time. And 
I mean, today I have about 138 scars to my name. About 138. Something yeah. tells me you know you know the exact number. Yeah, I, I know about the exact number. It's about 145. Yeah. What allowed you to step out of this? What was the prompting factor? What was that tipping point? Uh, the tipping point probably... You lose yourself. And the hardest thing for me was that a lot of people tell you that when you get released or when something doesn't work, one door closes and another one opens up. And it's kind of like this general sports term of like, you know, you're, you're hanging on to a branch or the road to pro, you know, you fall off one, you got to jump on another one. But not many people realize that it's actually so hard to get back on another branch after being told no. And it might be harder for some people than it is for others. I know some of my friends that left Vancouver ended up going on to Spain and just jumped right onto that. And he, he's doing really well and he's playing fantastic over there. I know some other guys that ended up getting into trouble and not even going to school after leaving Vancouver. And I don't really know what they're doing right now. So. But we see this model all the time. I mean, athletes that retire from the NFL or the NBA or the, the National Hockey League, I mean, some of them go on to successful careers in business or broadcasting or whatever the case may be, and others just crash and burn. I mean, bankrupt six months or a year or 18 months after, and some of them in prison. I mean, you know, you see that both ways. It's not just limited to to amateur or professional sport. No, absolutely. And I think a big thing too is that a lot of guys don't want to let go of what they were doing before. They, and even myself, I still don't want to let go of the fact that I was so close to being a pro player. I was in a pro system as a young guy and I still want to try and make it pro. It's just the fear of like, what happens if I get told no again? You had great turnout this weekend at the Bikeathon. You've shattered your fundraising goal of $5,000. If people want to learn more about it, they can go to the University of Alberta Golden Bears and Pandas Facebook page and find a web link there. What do you ultimately hope to accomplish or achieve through this Bikeathon and the conversation that you've started? You know, it was a fantastic thing to make it a charitable event and to have these uh, donations brought in, but it was more the awareness. It was wanting people in sport and especially varsity athletes at the school to speak about what's going on in their lives. There's so many stressors going on with athletes nowadays and especially students in general. And it's just to have that courage to be like, no, I, you know, it's, I want to speak about this. I want people to understand that there are hardships that, everyone's go, that everyone goes through and that we shouldn't just turn a blind eye to it because it's different. Like there's this big, um, there's this big idea of normality and there's this big idea of like, we like to stay in this normal zone and anything outside of that is like, oh, we don't really like to talk about that. Oh, we don't really wanna look at this or we don't wanna address it. And that's the worst part. Like there's these stigmas and we just need to get rid of it. Uh, it's, and, and I alluded to this in welcoming you to the program. It's not just that we're hearing from a, someone that was signed to a contract, could have played you know, professional soccer, now is starring for the University of Alberta and has this important message. I mean, there are people listening right now that are uh, ticketed. I mean, they're journeymen in their own field or they, they founded their own business and run it for 20 years and it's collapsed. There are people right now that are probably battling with the depression because, I mean, the simple they can't put food on the table for their family or they're having to borrow from family members to make the mortgage payment or people can struggle based on their identity or what they perceive to be their identity regardless of what they've been doing in life this can be a common uh, your message can have an application outside of athletics yeah i think so and i think that's the most important part as well is it needs to encapsulate everyone not just people who are varsity athletes or not just students at the u of a we want it to try and reach out and touch everybody and I've gotten some fantastic messages from a lot of people. Tell me about one. Um, one in particular, uh, they didn't say much but 
uh, she just kind of said basically that, you know, I think you're amazing for what you did, for speaking out like this really touched me, and I'm going through something on my own, but having hearing you and your voice about what happened to you makes me want to go and talk to family member as well. Hmm. And hearing that is just like, it, it makes it worthwhile for what we were doing, and it makes it that much better it makes us so happy that like no what we did actually touched people on a personal level well i can guarantee you that you've impacted people that are tuned in right now listening to you on the radio tim it, it takes courage and i commend you for showing the leadership and, and putting this initiative together and getting the conversation started on on something as, as you touched on in that video one in five canadians will battle uh, some form of mental illness in their lifetime which means all of us know someone who is whether we realize it or not tim hickson thanks for hanging out with us today no thank you so much i really appreciate it you can follow tim on twitter at Tim Hickson 8. Again, as mentioned, the University of Alberta Golden Bears and Pandas Facebook page is where you can view that video. Here's the headlines. Our thanks to our lead-off guest this week, Tim Hickson. Powerful message. You know... A lot of you, and, and I can tell by some of the comments on the text line, it's very interesting what some of you choose to text in. Sometimes it's observations. Sometimes it's a question you'd like us to ask the guest. And then sometimes it's just, you know, sort of, we'll call them more dismissive comments. And I guess I, to a certain extent, I understand why some people would be prompted to send in messages, you know, questioning why you'd have a certain guest on or why we'd be talking about certain things. To me, ironically, I think, it reiterates the importance of those segments. You know, the, just the simple fact that, that some people may not quite be able to understand someone else's personal journey is the exact reason why it's more important to learn about those personal journeys. Know what I'm saying? If you were to, to take a look at Tim Hickson, and this is just a broad general statement, kind of, a, again, a curious thing to say, but, but I hope you get the point, the reason why I say it. You'd look at a guy, and on first glance, you'd go, there's a guy that's got it all together. He was talking to me a little bit about uh, some of the disappointment that the Golden Bears felt this year. Three of their veteran players, including him, succumbed to injuries, and they had a sort of a rookie-laden roster out there on the field, and... If you've been following the Golden Bears soccer, you know that their their playoff hopes were kind of dashed with, with one loss. But he says they're really optimistic to next year. So you see this guy out on the pitch representing the University of Alberta, former uh, member of the Vancouver Whitecaps system, you know, 22 years old, just turned 23 yesterday, as a matter of fact. Happy birthday to Tim. I should have wished him that in person. Then you go, yeah, he's got it all together. Would you have guessed the guy's abusing prescription painkillers, the guy's cutting himself? 145 scars on his arms, he said. No, you wouldn't. But that's the whole point. It's the whole idea. That's why we understand the importance of, of talking about things like this. Trevor says, I'm a an ex-superbike racer. I guess like motocross, like a superbike racer. He says, I think one of the things that nobody really mentions is maybe not so much the drug and alcohol addiction, but the adrenaline addiction that you need. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know what an athlete's post-retirement journey is like. My athletic endeavors were always undeniably amateur. But if you starred at the highest level, I mean, we were sitting here in studio on Friday talking to Theron Fleury. But if you've played in Madison Square Garden and Chicago's United Center and 
And for so many years at the Saddle Dome for Theo, adored everywhere you go. I mean, you've won Olympic gold medals. You've won a Stanley Cup. You're used to 18,000 people cheering you when you have a victory. You're used to that thrill. I mean, you know, these NFLers, they talk about it. I mean, NFL Films does such a great job of making us feel like we're right there on the field. But to be a quarterback and making these split-second decisions and trying to not just get smoked by those linebackers and, and the thrill of a wide receiver. I mean, you get it, right? The thrill of pro sports. But like Trevor said in his message, you get addicted to that adrenaline rush, that, that heart rate being way up there. Maybe taking risks. And so what happens when it's all done? What happens when it slows down? What happens when your career is over before maybe you're ready for it to be over? Beth says, thank you to Tim for talking about mental illness. The more we talk about this, then we don't have to whisper and cover up. She says, what a brave young man. And, and yeah, and then this is now I'm getting into the <laughs> Gina's looking at me. Gina, you're looking at me like, don't don't because you can. Are you look? Are you reading the text line from your workstation as well? Oh, absolutely. Do you know what I'm getting at? Like the and, and I, sh- I shouldn't this early on a Monday morning allow myself to become discouraged by some of the uh, lack of sympathy. Well, but he wasn't looking for sympathy far from it far from it he was sharing his story because there's a lot of people out there of all ages of all ranges the people who are losing their jobs that some of these people are alluding to are going through depression it doesn't matter how you get to a depressive state it doesn't matter what journey takes you to get to that depressive state. It's how you get out of it. Gina bringing some emotion in this morning. I love it. Wear our hearts on our sleeves on this show. I just, you know what? I mean, if, if you think that you can pigeonhole depression, it's, it's this type of person that suffers from depression, you're horribly wrong. You know, you're, you're, you're absolutely wrong. And I think for a 23-year-old kid to come on the air and share his story like that, to, to get a, a bike-a-thon going and raise, he's estimating, they haven't counted all the checks yet, but raise about $10,000, double his goal in the first outing and try to get the conversation started. You know, he, Tim is still playing soccer. He's, he's the captain for the Golden Bears, which means he's going to be out there on the pitch again next season. And we know how athletics go. There will be players, I'm sure, who will talk smack about this. You know, it's, it's, it's remember what happened? You know, I mean, Sheldon Kennedy, when he came out and talked about Graham James, he opened himself up. For every comment of support, there were the other comments as well. It takes courage to go on the radio and talk about cutting yourself. Audra says, you know, that's the thing about having a mental health challenge. You know, we have these masks that we wear more often than not, and and we do look put together. But underneath it all, a lot of the time, we're not. She says, thanks for talking about this. Pat says, we've become a society of vociferous critics. She says, it's so easy nowadays with texting and tweeting. She says, I found the interview quite enlightening. Well, thanks, Pat, and so did I. We'll fit in a quick break. When we come back, if you'd like to keep talking about this, we will. If not, we'll jump into the mailbag. If you'd like to share a thought, go ahead and give us a call. 780-496-0063. We'll be right back. 
If you're just tuning in, we kicked off the show with Tim Hickson in studio. He's the captain of the University of Alberta's Golden Bears soccer team, former member of the uh, Vancouver Whitecaps. He was in their developmental system, but they didn't extend his contract past that. His dream of playing pro soccer, of making his dad proud, came to an early end. And Tim shared with us the reason why he organized this 24-hour bike-a-thon at the U of A over the weekend. Getting cut from the team, losing his identity as a budding professional athlete led to a depression, an unfamiliar sensation for him, so to speak, an unfamiliar internal conversation. He filled that void to a certain extent, as he told us, with prescription drugs and alcohol, and then he started cutting himself. Listener here says, as a, as a former cutter, I have to say this interview is so needed in our community. Stop the stigma. We are in this together. Stephen says, I've seen people all around me suffer from depression, and, and some failed miserably. He says, one friend told me he was homeless for two years. One friend in the hospital, a, a close family, overwhelmed. He says, it's as real as it gets. A listener says, the comments that you're avoiding, I'd like to hear them. I don't see this is the battle. I, I don't know. I, I, sometimes I think, it, you know, and, and, and many of you have chimed in before and said, why do you read the horrible ones? The first thing I say is I, I don't read the horrible ones. So believe it or not, some of the things you've heard on this show, it gets worse. It gets much worse. But I also do believe that sometimes it's important to, to read comments from people that, that I find to be personally offensive. A, because I think it, it contributes to the conversation, gives us an understanding of who's listening in and how some people feel about it. And B, I think it reiterates the importance of the conversation. So, you know, I mean, here's an example. And this is, this is, this is the, the, the 75th most offensive one. In other words, there's 74 worse. Let's put it that way. But just as sort of a dismissive comment, like mental illness, this is drugs, not mental illness. This, this is a kid getting high and getting canned from his sports team, and it's not the same as a guy losing his life's work because of crude prices. So, you know, apparently there's, there's, there's only one textbook way to suffer from depression. There's only, there's only one way that makes it okay to struggle with mental health issues, apparently. But if if I may, for a second, it's actually exactly the same thing as a guy losing his life's work because of crude prices. Guy works hard his whole life to do something. Circumstances outside of his control means that his work is done, not his choice. His identity is tied to what he does. His income is tied to what he does. And now he's at a loss. And if whoever sent me that text is going to try to argue that nobody from the oil patch that's lost their job is now suffering with drug and alcohol addiction, then you don't know Jack. Because we've got some serious problems on our hands right now in the province of Alberta. Alcoholism is up. Suicide is up. Domestic violence is up. Let's find out what Norma has to say. Good morning, Norma. Hi. I wanted to tell you that I'm so thankful that you put that fellow, I forget his name already. Tim. Tim. Uh, my daughter, my granddaughter, uh, her mother died uh, a couple of years ago, and that was my daughter, and she only had the one child, so I am left 
look after this child, and she is living with me now, and she is now 18, and she has been a meth addict ever since her mother died because she went down to see her friends because she didn't want to upset us with her grandfather and I to talk about it because she knew how hurt we would be losing our daughter so she couldn't talk to us because whenever she tried to talk to us we couldn't hold back our tears Mm. because we were in the state of deep trauma and grief and she met a friend who said I'll give you something that will make you feel good and it was one time she took it and it was the most beautiful thing in the world she said until you ready to come down and she got hooked on it on one time and I was doing all the research on it when I first heard and it's true one time you get hooked because it is such a high it's the highest of all of them that they can get on the street nowadays it's four times stronger than cocaine and more four times more addictive than cocaine and it's much more destructive because it's made with toxics that will ruin the insides of you she'll never be able to have a child and she's only 18 now she dropped out of school and she wouldn't come home for weeks we wouldn't see her and we'd be looking for her and when she did finally come home she was weighed about 50 pounds less and her face was covered in all kinds of large pimples and when she came down she went into a mad rage and would smash things in the house pick up a curio cabinet, for instance, that I had filled with antiques from my grand my grandparents and that, and just literally pick it up and just smash it against the window. So we called the police and told her that she had to go into the hospital because she was tearing apart the house. Well, they took her to a detox place called George Spady, which is a lockup place which they can't get out of. And she was there only for five days because that's all they can keep them for against their will because she was 18. And so they put me in touch with social services with one of the people that uh, he's the high high risk specialist in Edmonton. And he's been guiding her along and helping her. And they sent her to one of the very best rehab centers in Alberta, it's in Calgary. And she was supposed to be there for nine, uh, 90 days. And she walked out after a week and couldn't stand it and went on a binge for another week when she got back. And she ended up in the hospital in a secure little box that they have for people that are out of control completely. And the only thing in there that she could hurt herself with was the porcelain sink which had square edges and she banged her head on that until she broke her nose and had two black eyes and as for the cutting she has I'm not going to say how many cuttings 
but she's been cutting for two years, and she has scars all over her body, and the final straw was, well, not really the final straw, but one of them was she started cutting up her face, and she has, if you, if you just put your finger along your face, all the, all the places that you would paint on if you were painting yourself up, and they were all deep cuts and will have scars for the rest of her life. Norma, I'm so sorry to hear that your family's going through this. This is, I mean, it's so important are, to hear stories like yours. This is the impact, isn't it, of trauma on some people, tra- especially your granddaughter at such a young age. It's trauma and grief, and she has run in front of cars and laid down in front of them when she's been coming off of this trying to get herself killed. She has just done deplorable things because you don't know what you are doing Mm. when you're doing it. And like Tim Tim said, the pain from cutting, even though he was taking the pills, made the other pain go away. And her cutting was to make the pain of losing her mother go away. So it can happen to anybody with any loss. It doesn't have to be your job. It doesn't have to be your boyfriend or your... It it can be your mother. Norma, thank you for taking the time to share this story. I know your family's not out of the woods yet, but I know that this will have an impact on a great number of people. I appreciate the call. Thank you. You bet. Ben's holding the line. We'll get to him after this quick break. On the text line... Never. No. I'm not going to read it. That's the Jim Rome move. Nope. Not reading that. Another listener says a person can have the perfect family, the perfect job, the perfect friends, and still take his life like my friend's nephew. Another listener says, you know, so few people receive the support that they need. So few people, furthermore, receive public support if they're brave enough to share any aspect of their mental illness. Though many try, most remain alone in silence. And this discussion, says this listener, won't help. I hope that's not the case. I don't think it's a surprise or a secret that an element of our society lacks sympathy, period doesn't matter what we're talking about. We could bring somebody in here who, you know, lost their three kids in a house fire and somebody will say, you should have been more careful and you got what you deserve. I mean, trust me, there is there is some real there is some real poison that we see on a daily basis. But I hope that by shining light on this, by having the conversation, I hope that if you're suffering from mental illness, if you're living with a mental health challenge that, you know, that you have the support of this show and you have the support of the host of this show and will continue to talk about things regardless of the haters. So I hope this doesn't come across as though we're lifting up the rock and seeing all of those creepy crawlies underneath that are aiming hurtful comments at our first guest. I hope it's the opposite. I hope that having these conversations allows you to realize, if you haven't already, that you're not alone, ever. And that we're not afraid of talking about uncomfortable topics here between 9 and noon on Chad. 
Ben's been holding the line, and we're going to get to him right after these news headlines.